Hello and welcome back to another Spy Master interview. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we are back in the cockpit for a second time this week talking all about Firefox. That's right. We're going to let this one fly, baby. And we're all out of puns already. But uh, Cam, who have we got joining us this week? Yes, we have co-writer Wendell Wellman joining us. He um, was one of the writers who helped adapt the Craig Thomas novel into the final film, Firefox. He's also an actor, so he's going to have some stories about working on movies like Sudden Impact, the fourth Dirty Harry movie, as well as the um, Terrence Young-directed film, The Klansman. It's an absolutely fascinating chat with Wendell about adapting a book into a major motion picture, as well as, of course, the rest of his filmography. So, Cam, I think without further ado, roll the interview. Roll or barrel roll? And joining us on the show now, the writer of this week's film, Firefox, the co-writer, I should say, it is, of course, Wendell Wellman. Hello, Wendell. Hello. How are you doing today? Doing good. Well, thank you for joining us on the show. Um, now, we've been speaking about Firefox all week this week, so it's great to sit down with one half of the team that made the adaptation of the novel. Um, but before we get into Firefox proper, um, what we'd like to do is get to know you a little bit better. So the first okay. question I have for you is, you know, how did you get started in Hollywood? What made you want to go into sort of acting and, and writing as well? Um, yeah, so... Uh... When I was at UCLA, I was getting a, a graduate degree in English literature, and I stumbled into the theater and fell in love with it and started taking classes there and started taking film classes. And it just became halfway through my de graduate degree, I was spending more, taking more classes in the film division and the UCLA and the theater division than I was English literature. So I knew when I finished that I wanted to pursue that. So. Um, I went to acting school first and was there for uh, eight, eight years about. And, and by my fourth year, um, I landed my first big role and uh, which was kind of a weird film, but it had great stars in it, Lee Marvin, Richard Burton. And, and, you know, so I got to, I was the fourth build in that film as a debut. Um, so that started well for me. And then, but acting is difficult in LA. You, you get hot for a while and then you're not hot. And I couldn't stand the financial insecurity. So uh, one of my classmates at UCLA had gotten a job as a reader at United Artists, which is Sony, which is now Sony, but it was MGM UA then reading scripts. And I said, get me a job doing that. So he did. And we both, uh, you know, read and analyzed screenplays for the studio chief for about a year. And then one day he called us in out of nowhere and said, you guys write better than the scripts you're reading. Do you want to write? And of course, you know, that's just kind of, that doesn't happen very often. So we <laughs> said, well, yeah, sure. So he said, okay, bring me back a story tomorrow. So we came back the next day and we had a little story uh, based on something that had happened to me when we both at UCLA, it was kind of a, I stumbled on a murder story by accident and for, for real. So we told him that story. He got us an agent. The agent got us a producer who was an English producer, Andrew Bronsberg, who is the producing partner for Roman Polanski. And he paid us to develop the script. And that script led to a second writing job at Paramount um, for the two of us, Alex Lasker and myself. And we were roommates at UCLA. That's how odd this whole thing is. 
And then uh, that script was a uh, supposedly a sequel for the movie Black Sunday, starring the British actor Robert Shaw. But while we were halfway through the paid assignment, the movie came out and bombed uh, financially. So they just told us we didn't even have to finish the script. We did anyway. And then so by a fortuitous uh, circumstance, Spielberg read the script and he loved this. He liked the writing. He didn't like the script. He liked the writing. So he called Eastwood and said, I think I found writers for you for this book you want to do. So um, that's how it happened. So, you know, and at that point, we went into Clint's office. Um, I'd never met him. I was, he was my kind of hero mm. as an actor. Um, and I thought, I'm, I'm about to meet Dirty Harry. So, you know, he came in and threw us the book, Firefox, and said, um, read this, tell me whether you want to do this. And I went away laughing with Alex. And I said, tell me whether you want to do this. Are you kidding me? So uh, that's how my career began. And then it, it kind of back went back and forth. I would land an acting job. I'd get another writing job. And it just kind of went from there. It's all, uh, you know, I always tell, I teach occasionally. I'll teach acting sometimes. I'll teach writing sometimes. And I always tell people, look, a lot of it, is hard work and then there's an element of luck that you just can't explain hmm. and it certainly is true for me well i just had a quick question about sure. you referred to your, one of your early debuts you know the the clansman the film that you starred in and well, I, I didn't just, star i mean i was like the feature i was i played lee marvin's son so i had a major role yeah yeah and that movie was directed by Terrence Young, who we yes. covered a lot on the podcast because he directed several of the James Bond films. And I was just wondering if you could touch on, you know, early in your career being directed by Terrence Young. Oh, yeah, that's funny that you would bring that's a fun, that in itself is another act of luck. I'd gone four years studying acting and, and auditioned and auditioned and auditioned and never got anything. And then my agent called me up and said, look, we may have a little bit of luck here. My dad is a co-producer on this movie that Terrence Young is going to direct. So I can at least get you an audition. He said, you know, my dad will actually support you, but it's up to Terrence whether you get the part. So I went in and met him and I found out that he directed Dr. No and From Russia with Love. And both of those were two of my favorite Bond movies ever, you know, um, and he was a great dapper Englishman, you know, and he talked to me for a long time. I kept waiting for him to have me read or do something. And I was waiting for the dreaded question, what have you done? Hmm. You know, but he just, after about 45 minutes talking to me, he said, okay, look, I want you to cut your hair and come back in a week. You, you, you have features that look a little bit like Lee Marvin. So you, you could work as his son, you know, but come back. So I came back a week later, I had my hair cut and, and uh, he was wonderful. He was just a great guy and told stories. And I mean, just, it was not an audition. I mean, it was, you know, so I, he finally said, okay, yeah, I really like your look. So he said, tell me what you've done. Of course, then I figured I was dead. So I just said, and I'd read that uh, once that, um, Michael Caine had said something similar, but I just said to him, which was the truth, 75 auditions. 
And, and he laughed. He said, oh, that's so great. He said, you're great. You know, with the English accent. He said, you got the part. And I went, I, I went, what? I said, don't you want me to read? And he said, no, no, no. He said, I discovered Sean Connery, discovered Ursula Andress. I never made him read. I can tell with a person. You got it. And that was it. Interesting. And then it was great joy to work with him. And he was really kind. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. So very, like, would you say quite relaxed as a director on set? Oh, yeah. He didn't really bother you at all. The only thing he did with me that was upsetting one day is one scene with Lee and I. He made me pace back and forth. And I knew I was going to look bad on film. I hadn't had enough acting experience to know how to do a back and forth and somehow keep your kind of vanity working. You know, so when the film came out, I mean, I it just I just looked like a runaway pony. And Marvin got to sit there stoically and look like a movie star. But Lee even knew after the scene, he came up to me and he said, look, he said, this is part of your baptism. You know, you're the punk on the movie. I'm the star. So the star gets to sit there and do nothing. But you have to, you know, make a fool of yourself. So, but other than that, he was great and was really sweet to me all the time. And Lee Marvin was really wonderful. He kind of adopted me like I was his own son, insisted I eat with he and his wife every night after shoots and Eventually, I visited him on his ranch in Tucson a couple of times, and it was cool. But again, that was luck. I mean, you know, I got that part, and I never auditioned for it. So how do you explain things like that? I don't know. In terms of sort of being under the learning tree and a sort of a baptism, as, as they said before, of, of, of acting, that's one way to start under Terrence Young. Yeah, Exactly. I was fortunate in the, I didn't do a lot of films because I was busy writing most of the time. I, I, my acting career really suffered because I kept getting more paid assignments and stuff. Mm. But the films I've done, I've been lucky to always work with great directors. Like I did Summersby with Richard Gere about 20 years ago, and that was an English director, uh, John Emile. You know, so, I, and of course, Clint directed me in Sudden Impact. So I've worked with some really great directors over the years. and. I feel fortunate that way. Well, we started talking about Firefox and, and, and Clint just before we, we went back to Klansman. So let's let's get into that story. That's that's okay. why that's why we're here. So you said you were working with Alex, you knew him from UCLA, and then we, you were doing we met, we met in an acting class at UCLA, and then and he was a film major, and then we started taking all the film classes together, you know, helping each other with our with our papers. Yeah. And then we became roommates. So we had a long history before we started writing together. Never thought we would write together. We didn't know that was coming. Yeah, go ahead. And that, that must have helped the, the chemistry of writing because uh, splitting a script is tough. You have to designate jobs to people. And that's, that's a hard thing to do by, to, with two people. Yeah, we had a kind of a built-in system from day one because we'd already, because we, you know, after Metaboy gave us that first writing break, we sort of developed an ability we kind of worked together in an office and we'd assign each other scenes and he'd write one scene and I'd write another scene. And then we'd switch it, pass it across the table and we'd both sweeten the other guy's scene. So eventually it felt uniform. We had our own system by the time Clint offered us this job. Mm. So do you want to talk about Firefox now? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So if, if okay. so we're going into that, so then oh, no, go, go ahead, Wendell. You know, we took the book home and read it, and I loved the book. So did Alex. Uh, it, and I read it overnight. I think I it was 
It was an English writer, Craig Thomas. Seems mm-hmm. like I'm always coupling up with English people here. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry about that. No, no, no. Don't <laughs> apologize. I told you last time. I wish I could have an excuse to live there. Um, I love London and, and all of England and Ireland. I, last year I was in Ireland. I just, I would make a home there in a New York minute. Um, the, uh, the book, it was really a kind of a, almost a genre cross because on one level it was a spy thriller. It was really a Cold War spy movie, you know, in the heart of it, you know, and that, but then the other part was the sort of Hollywood sort of uh, thriller, steal a plane and have a plane chase and get out, get out of Dodge. Um, both Alan, Alex and I were drawn to the Cold War spy part of the film, which was a gr- big part of the book. I mean, the book was really three sections. He's recruited. He agrees. They train him and fly him over there. Then it's like his Cold War spy thriller. He's functioning essentially as a as a spy mm-hmm. working his way through Europe into Moscow and into Siberia, wherever the plane was. And then, of course, the final sections, the, you know, the, the dog fight trying to get out of town. Um, so we kind of tried, which was now as a writer, I'm more advanced. I wouldn't have done the same thing quite, but we tried to be as true to the book as we could. Mm. Um, and um, I, I'm adapting a book right now for a company there. And I'm taking more liberties than I would have taken them. You mean uh, um, recognizing, okay, that I know that's what's needed, but got to create some unique circumstances to achieve that. So we stayed with the book as much as we could. And um, the only regret I have in that experience is there, the book had a lot of exposition in the first um, third when he's being recruited and trained. Um, and they, you know, uh, what I meant by that, a lot of big, huge, lots of people in the room, meetings where the English, um, what's their version of? Uh, MI6, it would be international. MI6, MI6 meetings with also Americans, uh, CIA people there talking about what the jet can do and how difficult it's going to be to get this guy in there. You know, there were a lot of that and we kind of were faithful to the exposition. So when the movie came out, uh, critics attacked us for having too long exposition. Uh, You know, I learned from that and I just said in the future, I'm going to, no matter how faithful I want to be to a book, if it seems too long to me, I'm going to cut, 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 you know? Mm. So, but you know, we didn't know then, uh, but uh, otherwise, the, the one thing that was in the book that I thought was really unique, um, it's not unique now, they're doing it more often, but um, he, they, he had a, a PTSD kind of illness, you know, mm-hmm. from Vietnam. And so he would, under anxiety, experience flashbacks of the horror of the war. So the book had him have that several times, but we chose a couple of other stressful times to let it happen again, including, um, there are two I can think of, one where he he first gets over there in disguise and the, his handlers meet him and immediately mm-hmm. murder a guy and tell him to 
take his identity. You know, we gave him, uh, it began to come on to him there. And then at the moment when he's upstairs and dressed in the hangar, ready to go downstairs to steal the plane, we have him have a major attack that almost makes him dysfunctional, which also puts the, the Russians who were helping him down in the hangar at Jeopardy. Uh, so I love that device. It really gave it an extra kind of tool for us, but it was really his, his idea. Well, it's really fantastic because not only is it just dramatically gripping when you have those sequences, because it does kind of throw up a barrier between what you need to accomplish, but also it gives you some insight into the character because I wanted to talk a little bit about just writing the Clint Eastwood character because so often in Clint Eastwood films, he's kind of a man of few words. A lot of the film is him being escorted by other people. And I would love to know about just shaping a Clint Eastwood character and what he's sort of bringing to you with suggestions. You mean like, what was he talking to us as as writers? Yeah, like what is he looking for in terms of a role to play in the film? Yeah, I think he really, and again, I also, as you guys know, did Sudden Impact for him, which mm -hmm. I played a major role in, also did a rewrite on the film with him. So I got to collaborate with him both as director of me and as co-writer in the trailer of fixing some scenes. And then I did a third uh, writing project for him as well. So I got to, he, um, he really recognizes his strengths and weaknesses. He recognizes that his strength is that he doesn't have to do anything. He can just stand there and the, and the, the inner life he has is so strong that he hasn't, he, it just, he doesn't, so he chooses roles. I think I see over the years, he's still doing it, even at 90 years old, you know, he chooses roles where A, he's an outsider, B, he's been put upon by society. There's, he's oppressed in a way. So he kind of brings a lot of pathos and anger to the part without saying a word. And third, he's nonverbal as much as he can. You're not going to see him too often. Once in a while, I think in Unforgiven, I forgot, but I think he gave himself a monologue in that one. Um, but they're rare. You know, he'd rather have a, like he did in Sudden Impact, have this classic line, go ahead and make my day, which just says everything. And, you know, um, then... A lot of actors like to tear up the scenery and have big areas, I call it, like opera, operatic area. He doesn't want that. He wants, he knows. I mean, I remember when I did a scene with him in Sudden Impact. Well, I didn't really do the scene. I'd just done my scene and then he did his scene. I was right next to him when he did it. You know, I, it, we weren't together with separate scenes, but we just shot him back to back. And I saw him just walk up and he had a couple lines with the sheriff. And I thought to myself, he's doing nothing. <laughs> he's doing absolutely nothing. And yet you see it on film and it's all there, you know. So it was a great acting lesson for me. Uh, uh, and I tried to pattern that style ever since to some degree. Um, wherever I think I'm at, whatever level I think I'm at, I'll see if I can drop it even a level lower than that, you know. So, so here, as far as... I remember we wrote the first draft and as is his 
style, we didn't hear from him for a few days. So we both, Alex and I, started getting very nervous, like, you know, maybe he hated what we did, you know. And then out of nowhere, he calls us on the phone, and, you know, we were at our little office, and he, we put him on speaker. Hey, one of those is Clint, uh, Alex Clint. Uh, read the draft, really liked it. Uh, you know, really don't have a lot of, I just would like you to, maybe that section on page 70 to 90, maybe if you could cut that in half and make it maybe half as long, take out some money. And then on section, maybe a line or two, like uh, when the plane lands on the iceberg, maybe he says, check the oil and gas. You know, he throw in his own lines, mm. right? Uh, but they were so minimal. He, he just let us do what we wanted to do. So we did, we added his check the oil and gas. You know, it was a great line when he got out of that plane on the iceberg. And, you know, um, and then uh, we added a few other things and cut a few things down. And after sending the second draft, and he said, okay, we're ready to shoot. I mean, I, since then, I've had producers that just labor you. I mean, labor you. Tons of notes and then tons of more notes and then more notes. And you keep doing all of a sudden, whatever the life in the material was, is just gone. I mean, you just um, he doesn't believe in that. And he also said to us, I don't he tells his writers, I do never want to go this to go to arbitration. You will agree to the credit you agree to, and then that's it. And if you take me to arbitration over some other writer, you'll never work for me again. So he basically gives you a lot of license and protects the writer like that. And, it, you know, um, he's a dream, really, to work with. Well, it sounds, yeah, just as a writer. I mean, just as a writer, that sounds like a great experience because, you see, you know, the classic story for as a writer in Hollywood is, oh my God, just being run through the mill, whereas it sounds like Clint Eastwood's very supportive. He's really, um, he was never a writer as himself and he doesn't pretend to be, but he has a great respect for writers and really allow, if he hires you, he's basically saying, you know, I, 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 I trust you. I like your talent. That's why you're here. Go do your thing. And, um, I remember when I was doing the third project for him, which was a final Dirty Harry, which unfortunately he ended up never making, even though he told me it was a go picture. Um, he finally decided, his, his agent at the time, Lenny Hershan, who eventually signed me, I was his client too. He told me, Clint finally just said to him, oh, I'm too old to do it. I mean, you know, so, but I, he loved what I did. At the time when I was doing that one, he was, uh, mayor in Carmel. He'd decide to run for mayor, which he later on one of those calls to me, writing calls, he called and complained about how this was the biggest mistake I ever made, you know, <laughs> going to luncheons and ladies meetings about gardening, you know, just, <laughs> he was really, he, he only became mayor because he didn't like some restriction they were putting on his property. So, but he didn't realize all the things he'd have to do up there. But he called me from Carmel and he, you know, after bitching about being mayor for 10 minutes, he'd give me maybe two notes. You know, the, the one sequence when he gets out of the out of jail, I want you to blah, blah, blah. Could you do that? Would that be a problem? I said, no. And I, I, I go and write it in five minutes. I mean, his notes were always like him, minimal. Right. Um, and back to the Firefox, 
I felt like the best part of his directing and the movie was the Cold War stuff. I thought him entering, you know, the Eastern Bloc and how they transported him across several, you know, continents and subways and all that stuff was really right in the, I don't know how you guys feel because you're spy enthusiasts, but I felt like it was right in the Cold War genre. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you guys felt, huh? Well, I, I think the, the stuff in the subway was probably the, the strongest moment, especially the bit in the, in the toilet where he's uh, accosted by one of the KGB and he has to try and get out of that situation. Oh, yeah. That, That's what I'm talking yeah. about. That whole stuff in there was really great, you know, and we felt it was great on the script, too. We just that was, to me, the heart and soul of the movie. <clears throat> what uh, out of curiosity, uh, you guys do another spy project every month or how do you do this? Once a week, once a week, once a week. And so are, is your audience, a lot of it, uh, spy enthusiasts? Yeah. Pri- primarily. So seems to be. Yeah. So how would you compare this to some of the other films you do? <clears throat> it, I would put this up there with, because the thing is this, this film walks a fine line. It's both an action film in one part, the, the latter half of the film. And then you've also got the cold war espionage that right. we mentioned. And so it, 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 it's hard to sort of give it a direct comparison because most films we encounter tend to be very much action a la James Bond or more a Tinker Taylor soldier spy, which is complete cold war espionage. So it's kind of hard to give you a, a comparison of, as to things we would rank it up against. I, I mean, we, we definitely have bits we like. We we are also both big fans of the of the flight sequences at the end and the and the dog fight. Big fans of what? The, the well, the actual action sequences at the end with the the dog fights with the airplanes and everything. So the the jets. I think that was really well done, and the special effects yeah. was also phenomenal. I think on that on that stuff. Yeah, like it's a really interesting blend of that sort of almost like Le Carre, um Cold War storytelling with that post star Wars, like affects blockbuster stuff. Like there's not a lot of movies like that. Exactly. Thank you. That's what I said in the beginning. You know, I said it kind of crossed two lines there. Yeah. Mm. Uh, And that hadn't been done very often. Mm. No. Well, a question I had for you, Wendell, just about the, the process of adapting a novel. Um, Right. it, 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 there's one thing coming up with an original idea and fleshing out your own idea, something you're passionate about, but working from someone else's, concept and having to change things and make it a, a feasible project for a screen or if you're doing it around making a book out or something i imagine is a very difficult process so that one of the questions it is I'm, I'm doing that right now on this project this is another book this is now my third book that i've adapted that i've been paid to do the second one was fair game which stallone turned into cobra and then i lost my credit on it but i was paid to adapt the book. And it was an English writer. I can't, I, my whole career has been with English people. <laughs> that was a woman, uh, what was her name? Uh, I can't even think of her name now. She was an English writer who wrote the book Fair Game. And Mark Rosenberg hired me. He was studio chief at Warner Brothers. That was after I'd done Sudden Impact and Firefox to adapt that book. So I did that. And now currently I'm doing a book, I'm adapting a book called Harold's Story for the actual writers of the book. Um, but I'm the third writer in. They've had two previous screenwriters and they've come to me. Um, so I have some experience now. This is now my third time adapting. It's 
Here's what the problem is. I mentioned it a little bit ago. The book will have, let's say, a segment that you know you need because it, it's connective tissue, but the book may not have very good connective tissue for that section. Mm -hmm. So you have to come up with something brand new out of your own life try to come up with a sequence of maybe two or three scenes that somehow arc that section that work in place of that, but then marry it right back into where the material is working at the end of that. Does that make sense? I'm sounding yeah. pretty no, no, it does, yeah. spruce here. What was the area, the scene in, in Firefox for you? What was that version in Firefox? What was that section of the book? We didn't really do that that much in that, but we really followed the book. Mm. I mean, I, I I think when he got to when he got to the when he got to Russia when he got to the I think the wasn't it in Siberia I forgot some out wherever it was that once there we kind of created some of our own sequences about how he kind of breaks in through the gates and using you know other people we kind of gave life to those three people down in the hangar that were mm -hmm. going to help him. We had him hang with them and, you know, uh, kind of get to know. That was where we did our own work. Kind of wasn't in the book as much, but we found, we felt like you want to, you want the audience to have a pathos for these three people that know they're going to die down there that are going to actually get him on the plane. They know they're going to die for it. We wanted to create a little, time with them so that you care about them a little bit so that was one example um the like i, I talked about finding several more places to use the the ptsd you know stress reactions into to inform a scene that weren't in the book you know that's little ways we did that but i'm much more i'm much further as a writer now mm. than i was then so I'm thinking of a section I just did on this book. What was in the previous two scripts was just not workable. Mm -hmm. And what was in the book was abstruse. I mean, it talked about the breakup of a marriage, but it didn't explain how. So I just spent an agonizing two weeks um, crafting four scenes leading up to the wedding and then eight scenes leading into the disintegration. And I just had, I just worked and played puzzles and puzzles till I, cause I knew I only had, this is a way of informing what you're answering the question. Mm -hmm. I knew that as far as script length goes and what's gonna happen next in this particular book is so huge that I only could tell a beginning, middle and end of a relationship in about six or seven pages. So I spent, two weeks outlining different sequences of things that could somehow each scene could stand for a progression in the relationship to the end. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. So the scenes had to serve as really each one was a progression to begin to be, to fall apart, to gradually fall apart, to explode. Um, that's the kind of things you got to do in an adaptation. You're still telling the exact same story but there's times when the initial book just doesn't give you enough information. Mm. So you have to kind of craft your own. Each little segment in a long story should have its own arc. 
should have its own beginning peak disintegration into the you know and and you have to kind of the books there are very few writers in a book that do that right they like to I find that writers and books don't work with outlines as much as we do. They like to kind of just start going. And if they want to go on a side trip, they do. And then they do six months later. I mean, you know, that's making it hard on the screenwriter. You can't play too many six months later in the movie, mm-hmm. you know, and keep your audience. They're used to moment by moment storytelling. You can maybe have one at the most two. But books will have seven or eight sometimes. And, and they also always want to go, meanwhile, back at the ranch and then go do chapters on somebody else at second. You can't do that. And unfortunately, Marvel Comics, the Marvel Universe, has, has killed about 90%. Well, not 90s, too exaggerate. 70%, let's say 70% of what could be a, 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 a traditional storytelling that you could get away with in film. This right. younger audience does not want you to do meanwhile back at the ranch. You know, five, five months, they don't want that. They want, you know, they need, and they need a bump every five minutes. There has to be a twist every five minutes, another, you know. So even when you're doing, this book I'm adapting right now is really serious material. It's a true story uh, about a kid in New York that everything that could possibly happen to him in an abusive way did, and he turned into a criminal and all that. You know, um, it's serious stuff. It's not Marvel Comics. So, but the book was just to give you an example of struggles. The, the book is just a series of transcripts of his conversations with the therapist. Mm-hmm. So my job was to take all those conversations and then find sequential real events to translate that stuff, you know? Um, So what's happened to me though, is I've actually got to a point where I prefer books. Right. It's easier in the end. You're not having to be responsible for the entire story. You can be, I tease the people I, working with right now i said i'm because they already had two writers and one the first one got paid really big bucks i'm very envious of the first guy on this particular (laughs) assignment he he got big bucks and then one of the producers came in and did another draft and now they brought me in for much less bucks to somehow make it all work and i said at least you've got a narrative down and I said, I'm going to think of myself as Jimmy Page. I'm just going to look for licks inside of Robert Plant's lyrics, you know. And that's really fun for me. I'm good at that. I'm really good at it. And uh, so I'm, I'm thinking in the future, I'm just going to say to somebody, it doesn't happen that often, but somebody says, do you want to work for me? I'll say, is it a book? I'll take it. If it's not, I don't want to do it. <laughs> well, you're, you're doing the Clint Eastwood style. You're, you're working to your strength. Yeah, that's what I figured yeah. over the long. I mean, I've written probably 20 original scripts at least. I, I'm not all of them. Some of them were paid assignments. I mean, I've, yeah, I did a couple projects with Warner Brothers. I did a couple projects at Fox and Paramount and Universe. I mean, I've done all that and I've done a lot of my own originals. And when you do an original where you start, you're going to end up doing 10 to 12 rewrites before it's ready. Mm. And so that's a year of your life, a minimum year. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, and when I tell young writing students that, because I do teach writing sometimes in, in at, at a group called Storyboard in LA, I just say, you know, be prepared to do 10 rewrites till you really have it all. You know, so that's a long, but you can, somebody else has done at least the, they told a story. It may not be well told, but they told a story. Then you can be Jimmy Page and you can stand on the sidelines and wait for Robert Plant's, you know, yeah. lyric to start to set, ebb. And then you come in with this incredible fill, you know, uh, and take it to another level. So I love doing that. So well, they, it, it gives you the foundation to work from. And that's that's yeah. and that's what the you know Craig Thomas's book did. We were we didn't have to worry about okay what happens. Next? He did the this leads to that leads to that. What we could do then is start to try to make it artistic and find little ways to fill. And just just to finish off what I was asking before, what was the toughest moment then in the book to turn into? a scene what if you can recall that i know you mentioned that putting the ptsd more into it but was there a particular moment that was very tough to adapt i thought the flying sequences were very hard because the book used an inner monologue um in the book his inner thoughts were controlling the plane that was the whole in hollywood they call it the MacGuffin. that was the MacGuffin. Mm -hmm. this plane could be can maneuvered by your thoughts so it was faster than your hands um so in the book it was ongoing dialogue in his mind that allowed you as an audience to know what he was thinking what the enemy pilot was thinking what he was going to have to maneuver here to outmaneuver you know he it was all verbalized but in italics like so Craig Thomas could tell the story with dialogue, but it was really inner monologue, right? Well, we had to figure out how to do that. And even Clint said, this is going to be your big problem. I don't know how you do it. You guys are writers. You'll have to figure out how we do it, you know, because we couldn't have him just talking mm -hmm. to himself. You know, like, okay, now I'm turning left because I see his missile coming. So I'm going to put out an heat wave to cause that as to maneuver the missile in another direction. We couldn't have him doing what Craig Thomas had him doing in his head in the book. So we eventually arrived at the black box. That was not in the book. You know, we came up with the black box, which of course they always use in accidents where the pilot does say a few things and they can take the few things are in the black box to kind of work their way back to figure out what happened. We used a black box device, but we still had to. And that was our, you know, that was our contribution. He didn't do that. He, mm. he had him talking to himself, which we couldn't do. And then we chose maybe a couple moments where he actually got to verbalize to himself, you know, Oh, good move on his part. You know, one of those kind of things, but we, so that whole sequence which was about what 25 minutes that dogfight was a long part of the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We had to try to find a way to translate his inner monologue all the way through to make all of it make sense because in the book it was very dramatic. Every move the other guy made, he did a counter move and then he'd do a move that the other guy countered and it was really compelling. But if we didn't figure out a way to kind of allow that 
narrative to somehow be um, obtainable by the audience, we felt it was just going to be a boring kind of chase like in Star Wars where they're just going through some canyons. And I felt in retrospect now we could have gone further, meaning we could have used, we tried to keep it as minimal as possible because Clint was worried about it too. Hmm. So that, that was the really the single biggest uh, writing challenge of translating a book. Books, you know, I, I got, I'm sure you guys, you guys sound like you're very hip to the filmmaking deal, but there's even something that's happening now with str younger screenwriters. They're verbalizing the inner life yeah. of the protagonist, which was not allowed when I first started. You, it, the producers say, do not put anything that can't be seen on, you know, now they're good. Now they're having, you know, he's just had a fight with somebody. He's walking away. They'll put son of a bitch, you know, or, you know, she, she, he met this girl. He walks away. Heaven, you know, they're putting in her life now. And, and I realize they're all doing it. So on this particular script, I'm doing it for the first time. I'm saying, well, they're getting their movies made, so they're cheating. So I'm going to cheat too. Um, but and some of them, are, I when I teach at Storyboard, this it's a group of writer directors who get together. That we were meeting at Fox Studios until COVID. Now it's all on Zoom, but we that group analyzes a new screenplay on a movie about to be released, and then they have a moderator and break it down. In, in the last year or so, I've probably done three of them. Um, I've noticed that that they're all doing it now. Some of them too extreme. They're they're making up for not that high quality writing by constantly putting it, you know take that you asshole you know they're putting those things down that's in the guy's mind the, the thing is the audience still can't see that you know yeah. so that's a cheating what they're doing it's also a you know the showing versus telling thing right yeah, where exactly. we talk about scott and i on the show talk about a lot of older spy films you know hitchcock films or you know the harry palmer michael Caine films and so much of what's happening you're reading through the character's actions or on the face of the actor versus a lot of newer films it's narrated. It is right there to, so, you know, the audience cannot miss it. They need to understand everything. Don't that's let right. any of it be ambiguous. Yeah. And that's what Clint used to say. And, and we tried as best we could. He told us that was going to be our biggest problem. He said, I don't even know if it can be done. Uh, I, my own feeling is I wish Alex and I had, and Alex and I are still friends, by the way, we, we still, we haven't worked together, but on one project, we worked on, no, we've worked on a couple of projects. We tried to get going, just didn't get them made. But most of the time he writes his way and I write, but we, we're close, you know. Um, but I, uh, if we could do it now, I think we would have done that sequence more skillfully. We'd have found a way to communicate more of the inner life that was narrated in the book that we couldn't narrate here. And it would have made that, sequence all the more compelling because the book really neither the clint's character which was his name was mitchell gant mitchell gant nor his opponent the best pilot in all of moscow not one move did they make that they weren't inner life analyzing what it will do to the opponent and oh it didn't work or it did so it was really easy to follow the dogfight 
because we're hearing their inner thoughts. And, you know, so had we to do it over again, I would have put in more. Right. And how detailed was the action in that last section on the page? Because I'm just curious where you are working it up to versus when the effects people step in to, you know, realize it. Um, the, the, um, the action on, on, in the book was very specific. And in our script, we tried to make it very specific too. But again, that lack of narration of their inner thoughts interfered with that. When it got to the special effects guys, they kind of simplified it more, too much, in my opinion. They took mm -hmm. some of our moves and reduced them. You know, we were trying our best to show the different moves and counter moves so everybody could follow along. They made it simpler than I would have liked. But then I wasn't there. I, I, you know, we weren't writers enough of stature where Clint would let us sit with the special effects people. <laughs> That was not going to happen. So, and Clint wasn't there either. He was in Europe shooting all the Cold War stuff. So, you know, the special effects people really worked on their own. Mm -hmm. So we tried very hard. That was the hardest section. You asked what the hardest section was. That was really, really difficult. And we tried to the best of our ability to make all the moves and the counter moves and how they were both using this advanced apparatus to try to make it work all work it just it didn't all come out in the end the way we would like to have um i mean it's good enough but it was you know it was again I, I i don't blame special effects i blame us as writers for not being more courageous to get more of those inner monologues out there than we dare. We were still in the school of every producing, every studio would say, do not put anything on the page that we can't see, right? So we were trying to obey that, yet cheat a little bit. Now I would cheat a lot more. Well, you're, you're being quite critical in a sense of what you did back there. And I, I will just- I'm critical in everything I do. Well, that, that is a common trend. That is Look, a trend with writers. I, I'm so bad as an actor, I can't even go to a cast and crew screening. <laughs> I won't watch dailies. I don't want to know. When the film comes out, I send somebody to go see it and tell me whether I was terrible. <laughs> and if they say, no, you were pretty good, then I'll sneak to a theater and kind of sit in the back row and kind of look like this. I just, that's a problem I've got. Yeah. Well, uh, well, in that case, I always give credit where it's due. And, you know, when we announced we were tackling this film, I, you know, we had tons of messages from people saying they were big fans of it and they're looking forward to hearing our coverage oh, and, well, that's so and to hear from you, you as well. They, uh, we, we've got a list of questions, people on Twitter that want us to ask you, which we'll get to in a little bit as well. You know, okay, this, is, this is not a forgotten film. This has left a mark on spy cinema. It's left a mark on Clint Eastwood's career. You know, it's, it's one of his, you know, it may be not be in the top echelon of Clint Eastwood films, but it's highly regarded and it still gets, you know, thrown around. Yeah, you know, they have a documentary that they've been, I mentioned this to you, Scott, mm -hmm. they're shooting a documentary called 1982, The Wrath of Khan, I think is the working title right now. And they interviewed me for that documentary because Firefox was out that year. Yeah. And I was surprised. I mean, I don't even know if I'll end up in the film. I have, I got a weird feeling that I'll be one of the casualties, you know, because they, right before me, Paul Schrader was interviewed right after me was the guy that wrote 
uh, 48 hours. I mean, they had big names being interviewed. So why would Wendell Wellman still be in that pantheon of people? But um, but the, I was surprised at how many insightful questions like you guys are doing, the interviewers had for me about Firefox. I thought, no, that was how many years ago? Uh, 30 something? I don't know, 40? What? I lost track. Close, so close to 40, that's yeah. great for me here. You know, I know, for example, Sudden Impact, which I didn't get a writing credit for, because again, Clint, when we were on the set and I said to him, I think I can fix this script. You know, there's some holes in the middle. He said, this was, he said, yeah, I know. I've always worried about those holes. And uh, he said, but uh, you know, what, what do you want out of me? I, mean, I don't, I can't give you a credit. I've already promised a credit to the kid Stinson, I think was his name. I said, no, no, I don't want a credit. I said, this is just a thank you for giving me this great part, you know, doing Firefox. And, he paid me back in spades. He got me a two picture deal at Warner Brothers and everything else as a result of that. But um, what was the point I was making? Oh, Sudden Impact is the one I think everybody would know. I, I'm surprised because I had to go ahead and make my day. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It was yeah. such a huge hit. I mean, the, when it came out, it came out at the same time as Scarface. Those two movies came out together on Christmas you know, in that, whatever that year was. And Time Magazine even did an article about what's happened to America, that two of the most violent films ever filmed come out on Christmas Day, you know? <laughs> and both had lines around the block. I mean, they were huge hits and still are. And I get still recognized to this day from that movie. I mean, I'll be at the gym and some guy will go up and go, no, look, I was a businessman. I was young. You know, they'll start quoting my lines. And that was 30 years. So, but to hear that Firefox has that impact, too, is really incredibly exciting for me. Thank you for that. Any of those questions I want to ask, fire away. I had a question about, you know, Clint Eastwood did another cut of this movie. So there's two. There's like the two hour, 20-ish minute. And then there's like the two hour. I was curious if you had a preference between the two. I like the two hour 20. Yeah. I thought it was cut too much to begin with. I'm glad he did that. I didn't. Uh, yeah. I didn't. I real. I didn't even realize it until I saw saw part of it on TV on cable once mm -hmm. that he'd lengthened the film. Yeah, some of the stuff that we did, especially in the middle, he'd pared down. He kind of put it back in. Mm -hmm. I, so I'm, I prefer the longer version. Right. Because the book was an epic in a way. There's a lot cut out from the book that's not in the film. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it was epic. The book. I mean, it really was. I don't know who this Craig, I don't even know, he's probably not even still alive, but he was a good writer. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a good book. And I don't even know if you guys knew it, but when we came in his office after to, to meet him, to have him, he said, look, I went to Warner Brothers. There were five studios bidding on this book. He said before publication. And I went to him and told him I wanted the book. And if they didn't get me the book, I was leaving the studio. So, so they sent an entire private jet of executives over to outbid the other four studios to get him books. So again, that that was only Alex and my third script that we were getting to do something of that huge of status was incredible. Right. Well, the, the last question I had myself about Firefox was because well, we've had a, a lot of screenwriters on the show in the past and it's been a very much a mixed bag on what happens once you finish the script 
Because sometimes you're kept around on the production to do any like final touch-ups on the script on set, or they send you for another draft. Sometimes it's as soon as they have that script, they are, see you later, Wendell, uh, your, your check's in the post. So how was the experience for you? Were you kept around to do like brush passes or anything like that? No, the second, the second uh, scenario was the scenario. Clint, when, when he finished the second draft, he thanked us, told us he was going to shoot every word, was his quote. <clears throat> and he went off to Europe to shoot, and we were never brought on again. However, only about three months later, he called me up, not Alex. Alex had already, we'd split up as a partnership shortly after that script. And Alex talked Clint into recommending Alex to Burt Reynolds for a project he was trying to develop. So Clint had done that. And Clint then called me and said, I feel bad because I've already done a favor for Alex, but I haven't done anything for you. And I said, don't worry about it. You know, but about a month later, he called up and said, I've got this project. I want you to take a look at it. I'd like you to maybe write it. And it was sudden impact. It was just a, I got the project again, like if you like it. I mean, I read it overnight, started taking notes, called his assistant about two days later and said, I'll do it. Tell Clint, I'll do it. She never told him. Uh, and so about three months after that, I kind of felt bad. I thought he must've changed his mind. And he called me up and he was really mad. And he said, this is Clint. And he st I still remember that speech. He said, you know, I, I don't mind saying no. He said, you know, I say no 90% of the time. What I don't like is when there's no answer. I said, what are you talking about? And I pulled out and read him the notes. Of, and he said, oh, no. So he said, I didn't know. His assistant never told him, so he hired another writer. But he never forgets. He came back four months, six months later and called Lenny Hershey and said, Wendell's an actor, too, isn't he? And Lenny said, yeah. He said, well, have him come in and read. I have a part I think he could do if he's good in the audition. So I got the part and then I ended up rewriting part of the script and then he got me a two picture deal. I mean, so he, you know, but his MO is not to bring the, at least then, I think now he probably lets the writers, I know like he started using Paul Haggis who did Unforgiven for him and then he used him again. I'm sure he let a writer of that stature come in and do some, and I did it on sudden impact. I did tune ups on the shoot. So but the initial that was our first job i'm sure he didn't think he needed to pay for us to go to europe sit around you know and that's where he shot 90 percent of films in europe i think it was in it was either austria or czechoslovakia i forgot in which place he shot most of it did i answer your question scott yeah absolutely i think cam had uh, another we never we were done then yeah and I had the same experience on a couple other projects. Uh, and, and now, of course, this company I'm working for at the moment is assuring me I'm going to be a producer on the film and they want me on the set. And my attitude is, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. You know, but I have signed a producing contract on it, assuming they get it made. But, you know, uh, there, I think from where that was to now, the Writers Guild has fought tooth and nail with the studios over the years for more and more participation. I'm sure you guys are aware that most of the writer strikes are not just about money. They're about letting the writer be more involved, letting him be part of the production, let him do the rewrites, let him have a producer status. So they, they've come a long way since then. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, but look, I didn't care. I mean, he told us I'm making your movie and that was life changing for me. So, mm -hmm. and it, it was, it led to a writing career. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Agents, we have some breaking intel. That's right. Independent podcasting is not cheap. Equipment, hosting, research, these all add up. And we don't have Vesper Lind to bail us out. And also, we don't want to run ads on the show. Leave the shopping to Harry Palmer, we say. And this is a big reason we created the Spy Hearts Patreon. So we're here to ask for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to meet IMF standards and give you an even better listening experience. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalogue to dive into, become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, um, I think, you know, we've kind of covered Firefox. I had a couple sudden impact questions because you talked about how you were brought in to, you know, maybe fix some issues on set with sudden impact. I'm just curious, what were the, the scenes or the issues that you helped iron out? Okay, in the middle of the movie, um, you know, it, it starts out with, you, you see the early stuff, which plays in flashback where this gang of punks rape Sandra Locke and her sister. Mm -hmm. And then the movie sort of begins. She's now an Avenger and she's killing these guys one by one. And then you, then you meet Clint and they always have dirty, hairy prologues, always having, you know, beating the crap out of some criminals. And of course they had the great scene in the coffee shop with, you know, are you ready, punk? You know, go ahead, make my day. I knew the film was going to be a hit when I saw the preview. I was in a theater for another movie and they showed a preview. And when he said, go ahead and make my day, the whole place erupted and started cheering. People were screaming. I thought, this is like a phenomenon. I had no idea, you know. But um, in the middle of the movie, he goes from realizing somebody's out there killing a couple people to suddenly, real, suddenly making the jump that they're all part of the, a group, they're all part of a, a gang. And they're, they're, it wasn't there in the script. It wasn't get there how he made that sleuth perception. So I sensed that when I was reading it and preparing as an actor for that part. And I thought, okay, this is a chance for me to help fix it for him. So I, again, did what I usually do. I just crafted five additional scenes, but used them all within the sets he was already going to use and just had sec second visitation of the sheriff or him or who, to, to, to eventually find the solution on a picture on the wall in the sheriff's office with all of us together. That was, so I came, when, when I was on the set, and at that point, Lenny Hirsch and his agent had become my agent. I called Lenny and said, you know, I know how to fix the script so that, you know, you have a logical deduction process. And he said, okay, he said, well, Clint's really funny about that. So let me approach him on it. I'll be up there when you're there. And so Lenny called 
Clint over in, on, we were on the set and said, he said, look, Wendell kind of has an idea how to kind of fix the middle. And Clint said, what's your, he said, yeah, I knew there was a problem there. What's your ideas? And I already had it completely outlined. I had five new scenes and, you know, I said, if you have this and then you have this, this will lead to this, will lead to that. And then you could all bring it together. And then you see this picture and then you go to the office again and the sheriff's removed the picture because he realizes you're on. Clint loved it. And he said, yeah, but we can't creating new sets. I said, no, I'm staging all of them on sets you've already done. And he was blown away. He said, all right, go ahead. And he said, the office is at your disposal 24 hours a day. I'll have my assistants there. You feed them pages and, you know, um, and that was it. I, so the middle of the movie, I changed, I fixed, not changed, just built a structure of sleuthing that wasn't there. Right. And uh, he shot every word, yeah. every moment. In fact, it was like Firefox. I had done the work. I was in my hotel room for three days, just working night and day trying to make all that and fed pages down to his office and the assistant was typing them up. And I and I I kept thinking, well, Clint's going to call me on the phone and say, well, wow, this is really great. And nothing, no silence. And so then the fourth day, I had to go back out there and shoot the rape scene with the other guys, and I was really nervous, like he must not have liked the work. <laughs> but then he, like, he was in the middle of the scene, he came walking over to me and just said, I read the stuff, I love it. We're using every word. I've already got crews get setting it up and fantastic. And he said, in fact. When I'm finished with the scene, will you come in the trailer with me? I'd like to fix another scene, just you and me. So we worked on a scene together in this trailer. So it makes sense. Does that explain it? Yeah, it really does. I fixed the sleuthing process. It just okay. wasn't in the script. I don't know how. And that makes sense being, you know, Dirty Harry's a detective. So that would, you'd think that should be there, but. Yeah. And and I, I you know, had I was kind of drawn to. I still am. I'm drawn to detective movies and detective stories. I love that genre. And I've written several thrillers myself that have gotten close to being made and then they never get made. And I get actors attached and financing. I, one just fell through for me where I already had half million raised and a major director and producer and everybody else on it. And then the financing pulled their money and the other people then pulled their money. It's, it's happened a bunch of times, but I love thrillers and I love detective stories. And I really have that kind of mind of, okay, you, this will lead to that. And then if the detective puts that together, then you got two. I just can kind of think that way a little bit. It's kind of mathematical. Right. And I would love to know, just with Sudden Impact as well, as an actor, the scene where you have your encounter with Sandra Locke in the garage, your death scene. Yeah. That is an incredibly tense sequence. I think you are fantastic in that moment. Oh, I would just love you. to know about just performing that scene. Oh, okay. That's funny that you asked that. Um, and that's the one where I told you people quote my, I'm at the gym. I go to Gold's Gym in Venice. Yeah. And I'll be lifting weights and some guy goes, hey, Wendell, how are you? Now, look, I'm a businessman. They they still, I mean, this is, <laughs> what, 30 years later? So, uh, bodybuilders love Clint Eastwood and they love Sudden Impact especially. So they must watch it on late, you know, night showtime or something. You know, I don't know that they can still remember those lines. Um, there's a funny yes, there's a story with that. Um I knew when I got the script, and I mean, I auditioned 
she had me reading that, of course, that monologue from my audition. I couldn't get the easier scene to read, like in the hardware store or something. I had to read that. <clears throat> so I'd worked on it really hard. I knew it was going to be a bitch, you know, and, uh, because I'm talking for a full page. Yeah. It never says a word. And yet I've got to go through stages of protest to grief to denial. You know, I knew all that was going to happen. So I had worked on it a lot. And, 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 and Clint doesn't, Clint saves money. As opposed to these productions were like Klansmen. They brought me up the, the day before principal photography. And I was there till the last day. For, you know, they brought everybody up and we all stayed there at the expense of Paramount for the whole, you know, deal. Same with Summers, Summers B. I was down in Virginia for, you know, but this Clint doesn't do that. He flies you in for your scenes and flies you out. So I didn't know when I would, they'd already been shooting for about a month, you know, when the production office called and said, okay, you're flying out tomorrow. You're, you're going to be flying to Santa Cruz um, where they shot most, they shot the early stuff in San Francisco. And then they shot a lot of it in Santa Cruz. So I said, and I, I hadn't been prepared. I mean, I hadn't packed. I didn't know when I was going. So I said, I was a little nervous. I thought, I hope they're not doing that scene first. You know, and I said, so what scene am I doing tomorrow? And they said, oh, you're doing the, the beach scene with all the guys. And Sandra. I thought, I thought, oh, good. I just had two lines of that. You know, hey, guys, it's my turn. You know, all that kind of stuff. You know, so I got, I flew up there and the I missed the first plane. Uh, and I, it, that was not, I forgot what the plane was canceled. I think it was what it was. So I had to take a next plane up and there was already a studio limo there and a, a driver and he was very agitated. And he said, uh, you're late at Clemson. We're expecting you on the set. And I thought, okay, well, I look, I, the plane was late. So he drives me, keeps driving, driving, driving. And I realized we weren't going to the beach, you know, and we were going to a neighborhood with a garage. And I just said, what scene are we shooting? And they said, oh, you're dying scene. So when I got off the out of the limo, Clint came up and said, "Oh, you're here, man." He said, "Get in makeup and get over here. Uh, you know, get your no. Get your, he didn't let me wear makeup. He said, get your costume on. We, and we want to do a rehearsal." So I had no time to even rest, prepare, run lines. Um, I just threw on my coat. I did a ten second. I taught myself this relaxation relaxation thing that I do, where I just let all tension kind of work its way down my body. I was able to do that for 10 seconds and then walked over there and he said, okay, let's run it one time and see what you're doing. We'll just kind of do it as a rehearsal. And we did it. And he didn't tell me he was already shooting. Huh. And he said, really good. I already got that on camera. You know, you, you're really great. You're not even moving. You're doing it all with your eyes. Let's just do it a couple more, but I've already got it. In camp. I mean, he just tricked me, you know, I mean, so that night after shooting it, I went out to dinner with the other two lead villains, the girl that had, you know, that had that voice, Audrey Neenan, and then the, the bad guy, my forgot his Paul something, whatever his name. I went out to dinner with both of them. And they told, I told them that, and they both went, oh, no, man, I didn't have my lines learned before I got here. So, you know, I, I've often thought about that, that what if I'd been one of them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But thankfully, I had it. Uh, but thank you for the compliment. That was a hard scene to do. 
it's fantastic because in a different movie it's a you know do people remember that scene maybe not but like the way it's played just within the movie is just so effective and really does i think have a lot of power to it well man you guys have made my day to quote to pardon the pun seriously i i worked really hard on it and probably it's the single hardest moment i've ever had to do on film uh, I have a thriller that I did with Kyle Richards called Curfew, which they claim they're re-releasing this month, or at least on Netflix or something, where I had some kind of hairy scenes in there, but never a scene where on camera, it's just you talking for a good page mm-hmm. of dialogue and at the end begging for your life. So thank you for that. And people do remember, that's the lines they always quote. Yeah. Oh, I could I could see why. And, you know, you're saying that you were uh, drawn to detectives and you referenced earlier adapting Fair Game, which became the Stallone movie Cobra, which is kind of a cult, you know, hit. And Fair, Fair Game as a book was really good. Uh, it was a detective story. He knocked all of that out, just made it a wham, bam. Thank you, man. You know, he did. He did that movie because he was with his girlfriend at the time and he wanted to give her a part with him. Yeah, so he didn't really, in the book, that detective goes through, and I had it in my script, goes through at least 25 to 30 pages of pain stick while they're on the run, trying to figure out, he was realizing he knows this guy, and where does he know him from, and how can he get an, he was doing major detective work, you know, and there was interrogation scenes, he, he cut off, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Well, no, you're kind of answering my question. I was just curious what your original concept for the film would be. And is there anything in the existing film that does echo it? In the original concept, it was a great, she wrote a really good book. And my screenplay is very faithful to that book. And there's at least four or five major scenes while she's in the hospital recuperating from the assassination attempt where he keeps coming back and prodding her more and more, trying to find something he can work with. And they become adversarial and she really hates him. And then when they tell her she's going to have to stay with him for safety, she can't stand him. And then they go to a safe house and it's a really dramatic five to 10 minutes of film where they're in a safe house together and she hates his guts and he hates her. And yet he's continually needling her and prodding her and trying to find something to figure out who this faceless killer is and why, right? It's a why movie. Why is this person shooting this innocent woman who's riding a bike through gate? Well, in the book and in my script, she was riding a bicycle through uh, Golden Gate Park when she was shot. He had, Mm -hmm. they had her running. Um, yeah, so it was a detective. I'm just good at those. I just understand those. I don't know why. Interesting. Well, one thing we actually spoke about this off air, Wendell, when we first chatted. Yeah. And that was that you had also written another Dirty Harry script and you mentioned it earlier on in the interview as well. Now, I know some of this is, I think it's still embargoed. You can't speak about it due to. Oh, yeah. I'm not. I've never been allowed to show it. Mm hmm. It actually hurt my career because I was going through kind of a downslide after I lost my credit to Stallone. And, you know, and I people would say, let me see one of your latest writing samples. And I was forbidden to use it. It was some of my best writing, you know, um, at the time. I've written better since. But um, 
it was such a great, con it was his concept, it wasn't mine. It was a great high concept for that dirty Aaron. Uh, but that was a detective thing too. And it was, uh, again, a why. He was being, hunt Dirty Harry in this one was being hunted down. But he didn't know who and he didn't know why. So your job as a writer is to allow them to go through red herrings, mm -hmm. right? False, may go through a maze and take false doors, hoping to find, so they can eventually get to that who and why, and then they can defend themselves. That's essentially the structure of detective storytelling in a way. It's also in a way structure for horror stories. Eventually the hero in the middle has to start trying to figure out who's behind that mask and why. Mm -hmm. And then that gives them a clue on how to defend themselves. So it's, it's a structure I understand. Well, it's also a similar structure to a lot of spy stories. You have to, you know, put the clues together and, and you know, the, exactly the undercover and, and, and I, find the, the the secret Russian plot and take them down. It's, it's to me all and every time a movie comes out that has that. I mean, like the next one coming out is Death on the Nile, mm -hmm. which is about to come out. I'll be there in the first week. You know what yeah. I mean? Even though it may not be that well done, I'll be there. I mean, those are the films that I grew up with and that I love, and. Uh, uh, what was the last one? The, the, they did the other one like a year ago, Kenneth Branagh directing. And, uh, yeah, Murder on the Orient Express. Murder. I was there for that first mm -hmm. week. You know, it wasn't the best of films, but I, I don't care. I love those kind of films. I love that storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think most of the audience does too. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you look at the success of Knives Out as well. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. And even the miniseries that keep coming up on TV, there was one that was done in Ireland a year ago. The, I remember the actress, the Irish actress, Sarah Green. I can't remember the, you know, you know, the miniseries I'm talking about. It was like either on HBO or show. Really great about a murder up in Northern Ireland on a sea town. And, you know, these two detectives are investigating it. And, you know, uh, you give me a thriller. I'm going to be there. Mm -hmm. and. The joy of it is always we as the audience and the detective are trying to figure out who and why, right? The who and why was cut out of Cobra. Mm -hmm. um, but Stallone didn't need to. He was at the top of his stardom. He'd just done two Rambos and two Rockies. They just wanted to see him in a muscle T-shirt with a toothpick and beaten up on the bad guy, right? They didn't need who and why. And he was smart enough to figure that out. It just unfortunately lost me my credit because he cut so much of my stuff out. Totally. Well, I, I suppose I'm asking on behalf of Dirty Harry fans everywhere. Is is this? Yeah. I I get the idea that this script is locked down forever. It will unless it's locked down forever, pretty much. I think. I mean, could I show it now? I I'm sure he would probably care, uh, but. In he's done so much for me, three jobs, mm -hmm. you know, two movies that were made and one movie that didn't get made, but he paid me really well for it. Um, in deference to him, I just keep it under, I got it here. I mean, it, you know, uh, someday I'll show it to somebody. It, it's a great concept. If I could tell you the concept, you go, oh yeah, wow. You know, just think of Dirty Harry in a really weird circumstance. And it's funny, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, so the project, you're talking about the final Dirty Harry. It was his idea, and he'd actually had a writer 
attempt like 50 pages and the writer didn't know where to go and gave it up. So he sent me those pages to see what you can do with it. But I did a, I did a page one. I just took the idea and created a brand new script. And I thought it was a go. I mean, Lenny Hershan, not only did Clint call me and say, and we did the same two drafts. You know, I did one draft and he called me from Carmel and bitched about some more gardening meetings that he had to go to and you know ladies luncheons and he really is his character in a way he's still a macho guy you know yeah. and and so you know and then he'd say well you know i was thinking maybe if we could add such and such here and take out that then i think we're good and i did that and then he called and said okay man we're going to shoot this this fall this is my next film congratulations and lenny called me at the time and said, congratulations, Wendell, I want you to take two weeks off and go have a vacation and go. And uh, he said, when you get back, Clint's going to probably want a few polishes during the shoot. And so I, you know, went to my, one of my favorite places, London. And uh, I had eight other actors, friends of mine that were all already going or already there. So a, a bu bunch of us hung out together in London for two weeks. And I felt like I was, in that moment, that's after Firefox, that's after Sudden Impact, that's after losing the credits stolen on Cobra. I'm back in the game. I'm in London with a bunch of actor pals from LA. Um, I now have a go movie with Clint Eastwood where I'm the sole writer, you know, not a partnership or not anything else. And I I was uh, I felt on top of the world. And and I got a funny little story there too. One of the actresses that, that was there was dating the manager of U2 at the time. So I had dinner with them a couple of times. I'd already met him in LA and he was English. His name was Ian Flukes. And he said, you know, we're, U2's playing up in uh, Cardiff Wells tomorrow night. Why don't you take the train up and meet us there and we'll all hang out backstage and then we'll go home together. So I, I took the train up and I'd already seen you two a couple times with them in LA and he'd gotten me VIP passes and all that. So I, I went up, took the train up to Cardiff, loved the ride. I'd never seen the English countryside before. It was so beautiful, you know, and it got up there and the train was late and it was raining in Cardiff. And, but a cab, I said, look, I got to get to it. I don't even know where the stadium is. He said, oh yeah, it's a soccer stadium. I'll get you there. And he drove me over to the soccer stadium. And I thought, you know, he'd given me this little, ticket in the past. I thought it meant that like it did in LA that after the show, maybe I could go downstairs with all the celebrities and have an hors d'oeuvre, right? So I got to the stadium and uh, Chrissy Hines and the Pretenders were the opening act. They were playing at that time. And some guy let me in. He was like one of those door guys. Oh yeah, I'll, follow me. He took me down to where a little private room where you two and their wives and Kids were all having dinner. They gave me a plate and I sat with the band and ate. And then when they went on stage, they invited me to stand on the stage. So I stood 10 feet away from the edge. Wow. For the whole show in a giant socks. It was incredible. I mean, so that was point, point of all that is I felt like to quote James Cameron, the king of the world. Then I come <laughs> home to LA after all of that. I, and I got sick on the plane and I came home. And after a couple of days of recuperating, I read the trades and it says next movie for Clint Eastwood, the Deadpool. 
And I was just stunned. I didn't know what happened. And I, you know, called Lenny Hirsch and he didn't even, he heard my voice said, yeah, I know, you know, Clint just felt this movie was a little more ready than yours. And he just, you know, we're still going to do it. You know, anyway, that's the rise and fall mm. of Hollywood. <clears throat> it was a good lesson in hubris for me, by the way, you know, yeah, no you kidding. think you're up there, right? It was a Sinatra. You're up one day and you're down the next. Uh, you, <laughs> You think you're rolling in London and then you're back in L.A. and reality hits. Yeah, you'll, you'll always have Cardiff, Wales. I'll always I and I I cherish that story. Uh, you know, I actually I have never seen you two since, even though I'm a big fan. I've seen them a total four times. But that was obviously the the apex. And you're right. I'll always have Cardiff, Wales. And they were great to me. I mean, you know, his Edge's wife was giving me her dessert and they were talking to me. They were great to me. I mean, you know, I was Ian Fluke's friend, so that was good enough for them. Oh, there was one more story with that. After the concert, I somehow lost my friend Marla and Ian. They went in another car and I got out and I thought, I, okay, well, it's raining, it's pouring, it's cold. I'm going to take the train back to London. So did a lot of other people. And we got to the train station and there were no more trains. So the next day I had nowhere to stay. Oh, I was in the rain and there were thousands of kids in the same plight. All the hotels locked their doors because it was a throng of people looking for a place to stay. that couldn't get a train back to London. And I thought I was really done for. And then I'm in front of this one hotel and it's you two's road crew are getting out. And they, and they said to the dorm, no, he's with us. And they let me in and it saved my life. I mean, so I always have Cardiff Wales. Yeah. And by the way, Scott, that's probably part of why I love England so much. I just, you know, that experience um, was incredible. I can't say I've ever had a good experience in Cardiff Wales, but that's just, uh, that's just poor uh, choices as an adult. Oh, no, I know that. No. <laughs> Cardiff Wales was obviously a working town. I, I was up. In, I told you in Ireland two years ago, and I spent some time in Belfast and Dublin. I just, I love Dublin as much as I do London. I hope that's not a uh, insult to you guys. I just, I love Dublin. I just, it, hey, you know. Cam's in Vancouver. He couldn't care less. So, no. <laughs> no. I've never been to Vancouver. I want to. I hear it's beautiful. Not right now, but yeah, come in the spring or summer. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Wendell, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't include the questions from Twitter. Now, I have curated them. I've cut it down to three questions here about, okay. about Firefox. Sure. Okay. I hope I haven't talked too much. I've told you a lot of stuff. Oh, we, I, no, I, no, we appreciate I, it. i still got some more. Don't you worry. Okay. So the first one is from D Chantry on Twitter, and he asks, there were four books written in the firefox series um, one the sequel was made quite quickly after the first one was there ever any talk of following up the original firefox with the second book no clint didn't want to do that he he felt he he did it and wanted to move on which is probably the best idea probably wouldn't fly now they love their sequels nowadays yeah fly Aha. that would have been great because i'd have gotten another job you know, we would have gotten the job, I'm sure. So, well, the books are quite highly regarded. To be fair, the the sequel apparently is very good. The the books are highly regarded. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, he's a good writer. He was very detailed. Um, 
The second and third questions both come from at Kid Creole. Uh, the first one he asks is about the, the video game they made a couple of years later, uh, Atari made. Um, did you have any involvement with the creation of the video game? Did you write anything for it at all? Because they did expand things. No, unfortunately, no, because that's where guys are making their money now. Yeah, no, nothing. Again, that's probably as a result, probably can't, Clint, they probably called him and said, I don't want anything to do with this. That's your thing. You know what I mean? I'm sure that was where that was. And, and the last question from Kid Creole, he, I, I, we've already kind of asked his second question, but I will, I will kind of expand on it for him. What, okay. what was your favorite moment working with Clint Eastwood? Probably in all the things I did with him, probably my favorite moment was in sudden impact when we were shooting the hardware store um clint had set up a whole you know line of shots for that scene and he came up to audrey that was the, audrey neenan that was the actress and me and said you know just uh, you know i'd like to see what you guys are thinking about doing in the scene he said just sort of do a quick you know line through and if you got any ideas i said i said i just had night since i'm the manager of the store and i said we're in this aisle here i'd like to kind of be moving while we do it so i can kind of be moving away from her and be inspecting my inventory and he said well let me see what you're doing so i sort of did that we did a, she just sort of followed me down the aisle and i would say a line to her and then i'd go back to you know writing things down about my inventory and that was my way of getting away from her offensiveness he loved it. He said, you know what? He went to his crew. He said, give me, lay down some track. We're going to track. And he, he shot it as a moving shot. with All because of what I, my little idea for the scene. For him, as the at that time, the biggest movie star in the world, to allow me to, my idea, cause him to reblock a scene. You know how much that costs, right? Mm -hmm. Was such a compliment to me and symbolized our relationship in a weird way that i'll never forget well i i think that brings us beautifully to the final set of questions we ask every person that's been on the show that we've interviewed okay, okay. and this is really just to prove your spy credentials so the first question we have is what is your favorite spy film of all time wow I don't even think I can answer that. I, I'm thinking of so many that I like. Uh, you talked about the Lacar series, you know, some of those films with Michael Caine, mm -hmm. and, you know, those people. I feel like some of the James Bond movies are spy movies. And mm -hmm. yeah, I yeah. love, I love the James Bond canon. I just, I mean, uh, I love the two Terrence Young directed, Dr. No and From Russia With Love. From Russia With Love, I really loved at the time. I mean, it probably looks really dated now, but it, uh, most recently, I James Bond Casino Royale, I really love. Um, uh, um, uh, Tinker Tailor to a spy. To, what's it? Uh, that one. Yeah, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Soldier Spy. Gary Oldman was in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that film. Um, you can't do wrong for me with those movies. I mean, I just I mentioned the the the, the death on the Nile and you know uh, 
um, there was there was one a long time ago, mono a mono on a train. I'm trying to think of what was the name of that. There was one. Was it could have been? It was two guys on a train. Ones ones that are set on trains. I love right. Um, even aberrations like the series Snowpiercer. I don't watch it much, but I just I love having people pursuing each other on a moving vehicle. You know, uh, um, there's something about that confinement that intenses intensifies the, the the danger for me. There was one but two guys on a train. It might have been Robert Shaw. That's I mean that could be from Russia with Love. Yeah, that's the yeah Bond and um, Red Grant on the train throw. Oh, okay, there it is. Back out. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, that blew me away when I was young. That just blew me away. I just thought that's filmmaking at its finest for me. I mean, storytelling is a better word. Um, look, I even grew up on mysteries. I, mean, I read all the Sherlock Holmes books when I was young. My favorite of all time was Hound of the Baskervilles, but I read them all. Maybe that's where. It, mm-hmm. I read them as a 12-year-old and 13-year-old. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where this interest engendered. I don't know. Um, but at the same time, again, you know, my career is a bunch of accidents in a way. I mean, I didn't look to get put myself up for Firefox. You know, it came my way. You know, uh, same with Fair Game, which, you know, I, I didn't look for those. The one... Um, but I've always loved them. They're my favorite films. They're f- my favorite form of storytelling, really. I love romances that are built within the structure of that. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it just allows the writer a kind of freedom. You've got that strong spine. You know, one guy's after another guy, and one guy's got to solve the who and why, but then you can have this nice, steamy romance fit in the cracks like Jimmy Page does his licks. You know, mm-hmm. it just, it's just pleasurable writing for me. It's freeing writing for me. Um, that wasn't a very good answer because I can't name one. <laughs> well, we got from Russia with love and it's fantastic. So yeah, you, you gave us a few. Well, that, that leads me to my next follow-up question. Although okay. you may have given me the answer with your choices in film. Who is your James Bond? It had all. It has always been, up until now, Sean Connery, um, and I still think of him as the ultimate. He had the most panache, mm-hmm. uh, the glamour, the poise. He could wear a suit like nobody else. He could hold a cocktail glass like nobody else, and he had the incredible voice. But I've really become a fa- fan of Daniel Craig. I just love Daniel Craig. I'm sorry he's hanging it up. Um, But I was a fan of Daniel Craig before he did them. I mean, he just, there's something virile and intense and feral about him that I as an actor respond to. There's an innocence to him in a weird way, even though he's doing the things he does, there's a vulnerability. They're going to have to, you know, I don't know who they're going to get for the next um, probably my pick would be Tom Hardy 
but I don't think he'll get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love Daniel. The two of them are neck and neck for me. And I, I but I liked them all. I mean, I loved Pierce Brosnan. You know, he's a wonderful guy. I met him a couple times just briefly, but he's just a sweet human being. Um, Roger Moore had the humor. You know, they they all had some. But Daniel Craig, I thought, and I haven't seen the newest one yet. I, unfortunately, I was sharing a house with a woman and her daughter, and they refused to watch it. So now that I got my <laughs> get to see it, but I thought Casino Royale Royal was just at top of the line. I mean, that card game. Mm. Oh yeah, which occupied what twenty minutes of the story or more, was incredible. Yeah, about that. The the level of tension they built for us as an audience. Usually you watch card games. That's another example, like sitting in the cockpit in Firefox where you kind of have to externalize internal thoughts. Mm. So it's hard to follow card games and films, right? Because they're not externalizing. They did that so well. You followed every move that he was making and that Mads Mickelson or whatever. You followed every thought process and uh, going on. It was great. Um, it was. Yeah. So it's a neck and neck with Sean Connery and, and Craig, but probably at this point in my life, I like Craig's Daniel Craig's realism mm. the most. You'll, you'll have to let me know what you think of the last one when you watch it. I'll be interested yeah. to hear your thoughts. I, I'm I, looking I, forward to I got the, the DVD right here. They send all the Writers Guild sends us all the films to look at, you know, mm. so luckily I've got it. So I'll get to see it now. Um, you guys are great. This is great. This is the best interview I've got to do. Well, that's, that's, that's oh. very nice of you to say. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, yeah. I, well, I have one final question before we let you go. Okay. Because we're talking about Clint Eastwood here. Sure. And we're talking about favorite films. Yeah. What's your favorite Clint Eastwood film? I'm stumping you with these today. I'm loving You're it. You're stumping me with this one. <laughs> um, oh, man. It's... Let me go stop by saying, start by saying, obviously, Unforgiven is probably maybe the achievement of his career. I mean, probably the most masterful from a craft point of view for me, any movies ever made. But for me personally, I'm more of a fan than an artist when it comes to him. You know, I have to, it's a tie between Sudden Impact, which I'm in. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, the early, Sergio Leone westerns, you know, tough call, yeah, yeah. Or his original Dirty Harry was great too. That's where I became a fan of his. I, when it was ironic, I was up on the set, I was up on the location of what was the name of the, the movie with Lee Marvin? I can't even think of it. Clans was up there for yeah. three months. It was Northern California, and we were up in the middle of nowhere. So one afternoon I had free and I went down to the local matinee. They had one little theater in the town and it was the original Dirty Harry play. And that's when I kind of really became a fan of Clint. So you got to include that one too, you know? And then Mm -hmm. that was so ironic that only six years later, I'm in his office. He's about to hire me. You know, I just thought I was watching him as Dirty Harry. And I thought, man, to ever achieve that kind of greatness would be special. And here I am, you know, so, but I still love Sudden Impact to this day. I mean, I don't watch it, but occasionally it'll be on. I'll flip it on for five minutes. And I'm just entertained. It's just funny. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 
you know, and, and the, the, his Westerns in Italy, when he'd ride in on that horse with that blanket around him, the cigar, you can't beat that. Just, there were three of them, right? I can't even think of which would be my favorite of three, huh? Yeah, there's the three. Good, the bad, the ugly is the one most people hold up the highest, although that's for a few probably dollars more. my choice too, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's, you know, I've always thought to myself, what do I do when he's gone? He was really like a, he doesn't, I'm sure doesn't, he doesn't feel that way because I ran into him at a party a couple years ago and he didn't recognize me. Had to say this to a, and he kind of looked at me like I said, "Hey, Clint." And he kind of, oh, hi. And I knew, I knew he didn't recognize me, you know, mm. um, which was not flattering. But um, the, I'm sure he doesn't feel the same way. But I saw him as like a big brother in my life. He gave me advice. He gave me three jobs. He gave me his agent. He got me a deal at Warner Brothers. He couldn't do much more for a guy than he did me. And I, the the only thing, I, and I don't know why. Um, other than I worked really hard for him every time and did the best job I could do. And he told me once, I really appreciate it. He said, you seem to really care. And, and uh, so, but he's still at it, still doing it. So um, I don't know what all this story is, but uh, what I say to young people, you know, when they ask me about, well, what should I do? I just say, look, I always say this when I go and teach a writing class and they'll say, what's your advice to us? I said, don't do this unless you have to do it. You know, if you can find anything else to do, you'll have a more peaceful life. And, you know, you guys didn't ask this, but my regret in my life is that my career was so, even in the fallen period where I couldn't get work, you know, and I'm, I'm never stopping. I'm writing another script, trying to get back, you know, I let it occupy so much time in my life that I didn't have time. I never got married. I never had kids. So now as an older guy, that's my biggest regret. And, uh, you know, I've had my share of relationships, hoped they would work and they didn't. Uh, but, um, it's a career that's really demanding and, um, the great parts are larger than life and the down parts are, it hasn't happened to me yet. I'm still getting some work. And I, you know, I'm unexpectedly right now at this point, I mean, they're now they're re-releasing that little horror film that I starred in called curfew. And they did an interview with me like this for, for that film that they're going to show before it screens. Um, but the saddest part of the business for me is seeing the older actors and people kind of losing their way. Mm-hmm. Because the, the caravan does move on. You know, the dogs bark and the caravan moves on. And um, But I'm still alive. I'm still healthy. I'm still getting work. And, uh, and I still have something to live for. And uh, ultimately, I'm going to probably move. Uh, I'm thinking of moving back to the East Coast somewhere. Uh, possibly Nashville. Um so that I can, my last days can be out of here. So I don't have to be one of those guys, you know, that stayed too long. Right. That's really what I want to do. Uh, but I'm, I have a lot to be thankful for. And, and you guys have been great. You've made me feel like what I did had some value. Um, thank you for that.
Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all these experiences because there's a lot of people out there that, you know, love Sudden Impact. They love Firefox. And I think these stories are great to have for them to hear and be able to kind of continue the relationship they have with the movie into, you know, your personal experiences. Yeah, well, I hope, uh, yeah, thank you for doing this. And I've done three interviews now here in a short period of time. One was the documentary 1982, which they won. They were more only, you guys have been really all embracing. You want to know about Sudden Impact. You want to know about other part films and, you know, you guys, they just wanted to center on Firefox and how did it stand with the other blockbusters in that mm -hmm. year. and. Uh, and then the curfew, they just limited it to what was your experience doing that part? It's you played a total maniac and how hard was that on you emotionally and blah, blah, blah. I played a complete psycho in it. I mean, just off the rails. Um, so that all these came in the last two months out of nowhere on movies that are 20 or 30 or 40 years old is just, it shows the power of film, I guess, doesn't it? Yep. And the people are always going to rediscover movies, right? Even movies, even movies that are seemingly forgotten. I what I didn't understand it really. I never understood it until after Sudden Impact. I'd already done, you know, a couple of major movies as an actor. I've done a bunch of TV as an actor. I've done movies for television. You know, I've written Firefox for Clint. I didn't get it until Sudden Impact. That movie became so much a part of America's, how do you put it, zeitgeist for mm -hmm. a few years, yeah. that I would not know it, but I'd go in a restaurant and a waiter would come over and he'd immediately say, all right, now look, I'm a businessman. And they'd start quoting lines to me without even introducing or taking my order. And I, I thought this is just one little film with two, two major scenes. How does this you don't realize the power of that big screen, mm -hmm. what it's doing. Well, you've, you've created something, many things, and this leaves an, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll use the title. It leaves an impact. <laughs> um, yeah. That, I mean, that was, that was really corny. I'm sorry no, for that. Great. <laughs> and, and look, let me just say something. You know, while I say that on one level, on another level, I'm troubled. Okay, about it. I'm troubled. Yeah. About it. Well, I'll leave you with that. And I, I've become kind of a Christian. Kind of, I am, I've become a Christian in the later part of my life, and I've kind of I've been exploring more and more what God, it, what, what is, what is God, and who is God, and what His relationship is with us. And I realize that in some way, the movie business has has the power that's overwhelms even people's relationship with the with, the, with their maker mm -hmm. and and it can be harmful too is what i'm trying to say you know in other words i i kind of one of the reasons i told some friends and told some of my i have a lot of friends and relatives who live in nashville i'm not from there i've never been i've never even been to the town but i have so many friends moving there i thought that might be a good place to go and and somebody said well why would you want to do that i said because when i die if there's a funeral for me, I don't want it just to be movie posters. <laughs> I want it to be about the other parts of my life. You know, what am I doing for others? What am I doing for my fellow man? You know, what kind of things can I do that are away from this thing? But 
and pardon me for saying that, you know, I just felt like I needed to because I didn't want it to come off that I'm just, I see some directors, it is, it is bigger than life for them. And that everything is about the movies. It's not for me. You know, I still have a life and, and I wanted to make sure I communicate that as well. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, they call it the Hollywood machine, right? And within that machine, you can have amazing experiences, but there's things that exist outside the machine that are also just as important, if not more so. Yeah. And that's all I'm yeah. trying to say. I, I, I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm finding the richness of friendships and family and having a peaceful little farm to live on and go out and kick the tires. I want to experience that too. You know, I've lived in this town now for a long, long time. I mean, literally I came out of UCLA and went straight to acting school uh, to my mother's chagrin. I turned down two PhD fellowships, one to Boston University, one to UC Santa Barbara and went to acting school and started bussing tables at the Cafe Figaro. I've never stopped. And, you know, there, I, I now envy my friends who are married and have kids and have grandkids and have a home. You know, there's other things in life besides this. But I'm also very grateful that I've got to do what I got to do. And I'm grateful to you guys that you care. And we're grateful that you could sit down and talk to us and, and, and still have the passion to do so. And that's that's the important thing about it. And I, I think that brings us to a, a really lovely a final note and again i want to thank you wendell for taking the time to to sit with us and to chronicle you know not just firefox but you know the legacy you are imparting on hollywood you still are yeah well you're you're welcome and look i just wish i could meet all your your audience i'd love to talk i, I love people that care enough about this kind of narrative that they're willing to meet with each other every that's just fantastic so if you ever need me back for something, feel free to call me. All right, we, we've got your email. But yeah, Wendell, what are you working on at the moment? Is there anything in the pipeline people can look out for? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, you know, uh, I'm uh, doing this uh, writing. Uh, I'm rewriting this movie called Harold's Story. And uh, it's based on a book called Harold's Story. And um, they seem to love what I'm doing. I'm almost finished. I've only got a, the climax to rework. Um, and so, you know, they, they claim they're making this in the next year. And so look, look out for that. That'll be written. I'll be one of the writers on it and also producer on it. And, uh, curfew is supposedly going to be re-released. And, uh, I consider that even though it's a chintzy little low budget horror movie, it was directed by a director, Gary Winnick, who that was his first film. And he became a fairly well-known movie director and television director who's passed away, unfortunately. And um, that's going to be either on Netflix or in the theaters or somewhere. And I, even though it's a crummy little film, it's probably my best performance ever on film. So at, they didn't release it at the time. So I did all this work on it and nobody ever saw it. So it's kind of nice. Somebody's going to put it out there so you can kind of see what I was like at the peak of my acting career. Mm. Uh, and uh and I, then I've got two other projects of mine that are people are trying to raise the money for. One's called House in the Canyon. Another's called Sail Away, which could or could not happen. Um, so things are still happening for me. That's awesome. If, if we'll, we'll try and find some links for Curfew and put that down in the notes below so people can go and check out that film. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a terrible film, but it's good performance. <laughs> I actually have a decent performance. I'm proud of my work. Uh, well, well, Wendell, I again, thank you so much for your time. You got it. And why don't you guys stay in touch with me, okay? You got it. Definitely. All right, man. I hope I quitted myself favorably. Well, there you go, folks. We were clearly men on a mission. That might be our longest spy master interview of all time. Yeah, I think the Don McPherson interview we did for the Avengers was quite uh, quite dense. There was a lot of content there. But I think this was the longest one, yeah. And perhaps the most personal of interviews we've ever done as well. Yeah, it gave us a real look, not just at everything that went on with Firefox, Sudden Impact, um, you know, adapting the uh, book Fair Game into what became Cobra ultimately. It gave us a lot of insight into that, but it really also just gave us a lot of insight into what is the life of a writer and actor in Hollywood? Because so often when we think about Hollywood and the movies we talk about on this show, we talk about Michael Caine, we talk about Sean Connery, we talk about Clint Eastwood, but what about so many of these writers who we've tackled or actors who we've tackled who did, you know, a handful of projects over a number of years and then you didn't hear about as much. It was really interesting to get a sense of just from Wendell talking about his life in Hollywood. Yeah. And, and credit to the man. And I, again, want to thank him for joining us on the show, but credit to him for being so open about his experiences, because a lot of people could be quite guarded about this, but he was very open and emotionally available and, and, and really told us how he felt about the whole process. I mean, hearing the story about him seeing Clint Eastwood, at a party and Clint not recognizing him, you know, 35 years later. Now I probably won't recognize people I went to school with. So I can understand why Clint didn't recognize him, but having your idol who you spent years working with, forget what you look like can be quite a harrowing experience. Yeah, definitely. And I really appreciated that. So often when we talk about these movies, it's more on a technical level. It's like, oh, mm. how did this sequence come to pass? Well, let me tell you, it started at point A, we got to point B, and then we got to point C. Whereas I really liked how all of the stories Wendell told us were very much infused with just personal experience and the kind of the emotions he was going through at the time through developing these ideas and what the personal journey through his entire career was. I thought it just made it that much more you know, mesmerizing for me to listen to and take part in. From all our experience talking to screenwriters, they can be very personal experiences. You know, some screenwriters are very much just do the job, write the script, move on to the next one. But some people really do infuse their personality and their, their situation around them into their work. And I feel like Wendell is one of those writers. Well, I think this may have something to do with the fact he's also an actor. And, mm. you know, an actor, you have to be someone who's very much an observer of humanity because you need to reflect that back through your performances. And so he's very much, I think, in touch with that side of himself. And then to have him also be a writer and capturing human experiences, you know, through his work and adapting these books and then these screenplays he's writing. It's kind of like a perfect melding of the two things for, or I think, a really fantastic interview subject. And, and, and that's not to say we didn't spend a good 45, maybe an hour talking about Firefox, which is the film, of course, we're focusing on this week. And he gave us you know, a direct line to exactly how that script was put together. And, you know, we asked him some really tough questions like, you know, what was the hardest sequence to adapt from the book to the film? And, you know, you might not think it was the action sequences at the end in the, in the dogfight. You might think it's the dialogue that he wrote. But it was actually trying to adapt because the book, of course, focuses on the direct neural link between the pilot and the plane, 
Whereas you, you can't really have that in a spoken word film because, you know, you can't, you have to hear thoughts in a sense. So he, he he's either saying it as a dubbing afterwards or he's just talking randomly into the plane. So you have to find a way of justifying him talking in the plane, which is why they created the concept of the black box. I loved hearing him talk about everything to do with the action because I did have the question mark going in of how involved was he? Because, you know, sometimes you hear the writer basically writes, you know, dogfight happens. And then the effects people come in and the storyboard artists and all that. Okay, and that's how we got the action scene. You look at how not just Marvel, but a lot of, um, you know, blockbusters work now where they previs all their action sequences and then basically tell the writers or the directors in some cases, here's your action scenes, you know, right around that. You need to work these in. And I really enjoyed hearing him talk about the nuts and bolts of trying to communicate this from the book onto the page and deliver an action experience that people would be satisfied with, not just on a sensationalistic level, but also on an emotional level. Absolutely. And he is also clearly a fan of the spy genre. You know, when we asked him the questions at the end about his favorite spy movies, he was jumping between Bond films and Le Carre adaptations. He knows the genre. And he even asked us, you know, what we liked about the film and, and what the scenes I pulled out was the the espionage in the train, which I mentioned on the review is one of my favorite bits of the film. I think that's a really well crafted scene. And he spoke at length about how he developed that part of the film. And also, I think uh, one thing we both remarked on as an interesting part of the story was the, the PTSD element. Yeah. And he, he went on to say that that wasn't that big. It was in the original book, but it wasn't a huge part of it. And they really beefed that bit up. So credit to them both for, for, for putting a spotlight on something that wasn't really taken particularly seriously back in the 80s. No, it's a movie that's become a cult favorite. And that's so often the case with movies, especially movies that are kind of strange. Firefox is a strange movie. Um, 90 minutes of it is like a very slow burn, you know, Cold War espionage story. And then you have this kind of, as I say in the interview, like a post-Star Wars effect sequence kind of melded onto it. That unto itself is incredibly unique. And so if you have something that's very unique, and especially if it has an icon like Clint Eastwood attached to it, and I think a high level of technical polish going on with the action and also the espionage stuff, that at a certain point, even if it's critically slammed, people are going to come around to it because... They're going to see it on TV. They're going to see it on video, whatever. He talks about how at the time people were really hard. But you know what? There was 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds sitting in that movie theater watching Firefox who were bringing a perspective that would kind of become at least the cult you know, interpretation of that movie in the years to come. And, and they're the listeners like yourself who've tuned in for this interview. You wanted to hear more about Firefox and by gosh, I hope we delivered for you. Mm-hmm, definitely. And this was just a real pleasure. I mean, I was saying to Scott before we started recording these raps, it was just very surreal to me to be sitting here talking to, you know, an actor who I'd seen in the 430 Harry movie back in the day when I was 18, 19 years old. And I did a rewatch a couple of years ago, but just to talk to someone who, you know, helped write on that Dirty Harry film as well as obviously Firefox, but just what a surrealistic journey. And, um, you know, uh, Wendell talked himself about how things just happen, you know, luck just happens. And like, for both of us, the fact we got to wind up in this interview was, you know, luck and obviously you, um, you know, making this happen by tracking him down and contacting him. But nonetheless, what happens if this podcast never starts? It's these weird journeys you go on in your life that result in very fascinating little moments.
And they only happen when you try. It's true. And that's the moral of the story, folks. We can, before we wrap up, did you have any sort of other favorite moments you wanted to highlight? Yeah. And it was actually talking to him about the movie The Klansman, which I don't think many people maybe remember. But when I realized it was directed by Terrence Young, I was like, oh my God, this is an in. And I was fascinated to hear him talk about the experience of working with Terrence Young on one of his first you know, experiences in the industry. Because, Scott, we've covered you know, obviously the classic Bond films. We've talked about Thunderball and we've talked about Dr. No and From Russia With Love. We don't really have a connection to anyone who worked on those films to be able to talk about Terrence Young on this podcast. We don't have Spymaster interviews for those movies. And so like, I don't know how many other opportunities we'll have beyond this to be able to talk to someone who had firsthand experiences with one of the legendary Bond directors. Absolutely. And and this is, I mean, you gave me credit for, for finding Wendell and thank you, but I, I will give you credit wherever it's due. And you did this before, actually, in one of our previous interviews where you realized there was a, a, a Bond connection that we could make. And that's that's your exceedingly good knowledge of James Bond right there. And and credit to you for coming up with that, that question, because, you know, that's some really insightful stuff. And, and, and hearing stories about how Terrence Young auditions actors and things like that, that's all the sort of stuff that could get lost to time if no one's telling these stories. So I'm glad we had the chance to, to find out. Definitely. You know, we talked to John Glenn recently and um, we have a, you know, the opportunity here, probably people talk about being directed by some of the newer Bond directors at some point down the road, hopefully. But some of the ones like, you know, your Guy Hamiltons, your Terrence Youngs, those story opportunities are getting smaller by the day. And credit to Wendell, that was like his first major foray into Hollywood. And he was working for, for Bond royalty. I think if you or I were in that position, we probably would have been fangirling out, asking him all sorts of questions about Dr. No's rubber suit. <laughs> and also the alternate script where there was the monkey that was Dr. No. It would be nothing but yes. questions about that. Yes. How many bananas were there? <laughs> Did you ever audition a monkey? I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> I need to Dr. No. <laughs> So again, we want to thank Wendell for joining us and thank you all for listening. We hope you've enjoyed our coverage on Firefox. It was certainly an interesting film and I'm glad we had the opportunity to go back and explore it. Definitely, definitely. Really unique 80s movie that it's definitely got its fans and I completely understand why. So, Cam, the question is, what have we got coming up next week? Yes, we are going to be meeting back up with Xander Cage. No, wait, scratch that out. We're meeting up with Ice Cube in Triple X State of the Union. Yes, it's the Xanderless Triple X film. Uh, we've got some uh, great guests actually come to uh, to join us to dissect this film. I've never seen it. I didn't go and see it in the cinema as a protest for it not having Vin Diesel in. So it'll be an interesting first time watch for me and I'm looking forward to uh, getting extreme once again. Yes, and we should also mention we will be dropping a commentary over on the Patreon for The Born Identity. You know, we're talking about, with Wendell, adapting an espionage story into a major motion picture. And uh, we're going to look at the same thing when we do The Born Identity. Yeah, that'll be another another great commentary. Obviously, we're just following up from our recent one with The Ipcris File, which is another uh, literary adaptation as well. It seems to be a trend we have here. No kidding. Well, you know, if you wish to support the show, we'd love to have you over on our Patreon. You can find out more about the different tiers and how you can support Spy Hards. And just remember, every penny goes towards improving the show over on patreon.com 
slash spyhards, but there'll also be links below in the show notes. And of course, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Triple X2 State of the Union and join us next week. Don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S. But until next week, go ahead, make me mayor. 